3: Hello and welcome to Inside Politics, the politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy, sitting in again this morning for our regular host, Hugh Linehan, who's on his annual Guinness and Yoga retreat in Donegal. He'll be back next week. Well, as September rolls on, politics is slowly cranking up for what will be a busy and consequential term between now and Christmas. Today, the Cabinet meets for the first time since July, and next week the parties will hold their September think-ins in advance of the return of the doll the following week. Officials are busy working on the budget to be delivered on October the 10th and the various spending departments are finalising their bids to the Department of Public Expenditure for spending increases next year. In a while, we'll be talking to our Northern editor, Freya McClements, about the prospects for the restoration of the Northern institutions and the state of play within the DUP. But first, to discuss today's Cabinet meeting and affairs south of the border generally – I'm joined by a brace of political correspondents, Harry McGee and Cormac McQuinn. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, Pat. Cormac, let me turn to you first. Today's cabinet, it's meeting down in Avoca, County Wicklow. Why on earth? Is it just to go in the big slide? What's coming up with the agenda? I mean,
1: you would you would think that they would avoid that particular photo opportunity down the slide, uh, which would be used ad nauseum when, they, when they're... Flying down in the opinion polls, but uh, you never know, we might see one or two of them. The ministers are back from their their long summers of of sunbathing in their constituency offices, talking to constituents today. There's a couple of things that they'll be looking at the most uh, pressing, I suppose, are the most... The most newsworthy will perhaps be uh, the the situation at RTE. Uh, Minister for Media, Catherine Martin, is expected to provide a, a briefing on the, the current state of affairs, including the the fall in the the licence fee uh, figures that has has occurred, uh, which has been very much linked to the the controversy over the the, the payments to to Ryan Tuberty and the. The, the the various bits of spending by RT and Entertainment and other matters.
3: Yeah, we're reporting a bit on that um, this morning and it'll be part of the briefing that Catherine Martin will give our fellow cabinet ministers, as I understand it, uh, this morning. But I got figures yesterday from the Department of Media and it showed that this, you know, whatever you call it, it is a licence fee revolt or is it just people aren't bothering to do it? But the last week of August... Licence fee income was down by 40% compared to last year and... If anything seems to be accelerating uh, rather than anything
1: else, is it? Well, this is it. I mean, it started off in the kind of the, the mid twenties. Then it became a, a third of of license fee payers not buying new ones or renewing it uh, compared to last year. Now now forty percent. It's it's not slowing down. I mean, it's it's one of these things that people feel they can get away with. People have already felt that they could get away with it before. They had an excuse, I suppose, with, given the controversy at RT and there was a, evasion rates I think of fifteen percent or so. So you know, they, if anything, it has accelerated that. And and do you know what? It might kickstart government efforts to to resolve the the whole issue of, of funding public service broadcasting. They kicked the can down the road after the the commission and future media uh, proposed that uh, that it be funded entirely from exchequer funding. That was rejected, and then the, a subsequent review was carried out on what what was to become of the license fee. So it might well you know exercise minds if if RT is in a is in a serious financial situation as as it's believed it is. I mean it's
3: it's certainly headed. for... For uh, a serious financial situation, whatever the day-to-day figures are, because if they're losing thirty, forty percent of their license fee income, the license fee is over half their budget.
1: But it's it's been the guts of it's been the guts of a million euro a week, you know. And if that if that extends out for for half a year, you know, that's it's a lot of flip flops. Yeah, yeah, it's twenty twenty million plus, you know. So it, it is serious, and and RT already required. Interim funding last year to bridge the gap between what they what they were spending and what was coming in license fee wise and commercial revenue wise. So you know it, it's a serious problem for for the for the national broadcaster. You know, but I think we we should see in the coming months certainly some sort of proposal for how to how to fund them into the future. Uh, it's it's surprising it's taken this long though that you know the commission reported last year. I think it was. Well, I mean, they accepted the
3: most of the commission's recommendations. The only. One they didn't accept was that RTE should be exchequer funded. But there's, as I understand it, Harry, there's there's two issues here. One is an immediate issue of this, you know, immediate financial issue for RTE, which is, it itself is a combination of two things. There's the ongoing shortfall, and the RTE got 15 million euro, considerably less than they were looking for in the budget last year. So there's that shortfall of, uh, of funding. But there's there's also then the aggravating factor of the current license fee rebellion or whatever you uh, want to call it. So that's the first issue that government and RTE have to figure out how to deal with is the initial short-term funding needs of RTE. The longer term funding is something that's not going to be addressed until all those inquiries into exactly what happened in RTE are concluded and that's not going to happen until next year and you just wonder about if that is going to get done at all before in the lifetime of this government. I mean, I know that Taoiseach has indicated that he wants to do that, but you're headed into, you know, ne- next year, second half of next year. Does government really want to deal with a major issue of public
0: funding of RTE at that stage? Maybe so. Maybe. It just depends on how they handle it, Pat. As you correctly say, there are two issues at play. Uh, the first one is the short-term funding. So if we go back to earlier this year, in the wake of the report uh, on the Future of Media Commission, which recommended interim funding for RTE ahead of, of a longer process to look at the overall funding of public service uh, broadcasting and public service media in Ireland, they did recommend interim funding. And there was a, a slew of correspondence between RTE and and the minister uh, before the great unpleasantness happened <laughs> when we found out about Ryan uh, Tuberty and the secret payments and what have you. And all of that was, of course, put into suspension uh, once that uh, occurred. So before the controversy erupted, it was known that Orty had a, a hole that needed to be plugged. RTE had actually put in a specific request uh, for a figure, the quantum of which we might find out about later today.
3: It was reported, I, I mean, I haven't seen a confirmation of it, but it was reported of being in the region 35 million, right? And 30
0: million and 40 million and 25 million. Yeah, I mean, there's been a few figures <laughs> flying about in <laughs> the best tradition kind of, of these days. Yeah, things. so I think there were, they, they, the latest media minds were at work kind of guesstimating how much RTE was in the black, but the actual figure hasn't been released. And um, what is
3: your assessment of, of the state of play within government with regard to that request for for more funding?
0: Look, RTE is the national broadcaster. Uh, Public service broadcasting and public service media is a very integral component of any functioning democracy. And the government realises that, you know, that they are going to have to make sure that RTE is a properly funded organisation and I, I think that ultimately the government will be willing to provide funding for RTE, but there will be terms and conditions attached. And we've heard about the terms and conditions uh, at nauseum over the past month or two from various government ministers. There'll have to be questions of transparency, of governance, of RTE ensuring that it's uh, cutting its cloth to suit its measure in terms of not overpaying its uh, big stars, in terms of not kind of wasting money on the kind of lavish expenses that we have all learned about over the past two months. And what about the point made by RTE's
3: rivals, uh, and they've been making it over the summer, that, you know, if RTE is outbidding them, say, for example, for their rights to broadcast Carnation Street uh, or whatever, how can that fit into a public service broadcasting agreement? And how can that then be, be fair, essentially?
0: Yeah, the the model for RTE is, is say, unlike the BBC, which is totally uh, funded by the taxpayer. But if we were to move in the direction of that, we would have a very slimmed down RTE, which would essentially just essentially be a, a news and current affairs broadcaster with a couple of kind of documentaries and kind of lifestyle programmes that kind of fell within the amazon
3: News, current affairs, sport... Arts, culture—yeah, but it would be. This is reason, a reasonable mix. It is, but um, too much to, too much to, you know, to. But it would become. See, my own bias on it. That's all I watch on it.
0: Yeah, me. but yes, but Pat, you're you're an Anorak, uh life life <laughs> life carrying card carrying member of the Anorak society. So you know, much. we are all these are things I'm interested in as well. But I mean, the, the wider public do like Coronation Street, and they do like the game shows. They could still, uh, they could still make Fair City. Or stopping them doing that. Uh, yeah, dancing with the stars. Is that a public High service culture, remit? Yeah. So essentially people look at, at television or look at, at, at media for, for a wide variety of things. And um RTE is a little bit like the health services here. There's part partly uh a, a public function and there's partly a private function as well. So if uh, the ministers have made the argument that if RTE were to be funded as as it currently is, in the same way that the BBC is, that the, the, the licence fee would go from you know, less than €200 euro per annum, up to about four or €500 euro per annum at the very least. I have my doubts now whether there'll be the political will for that. No, there won't be. So I think they will probably try to retain the current model. And the other thing is that if RTE departs from the commercial um, side of it, you know, you're going to get into a kind of a, a, almost a monopoly situation then with Virgin Media because it will be left alone in the commercial space and will be able to dictate all the terms and won't really have the kind of competition uh, mm-hmm. That 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 might be desirable. So I think they're going to retain the same model, and there are good grounds for for containing the same uh, model. But at the same time, when you go back into the governance side of it, there has to be a very uh, th- th- there has to be very strong uh, uh, lines drawn between the public and the private. So the fun- funding for one doesn't beginning begin to seep into the other and begin to subsidize uh, the other. And one of the arguments that has been made, and I think there's some cogency behind it, about RTE is that it's been able to use the leverage of both its public and private funding you know for the betterment of its entertainment stroke non mm-hmm. uh, public side and that's something that any minister or any government uh, that is looking for better government's transparency and compartmentalization for want of a better word uh, will look for that 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 that's all very strictly uh, defined, that everything is within mm-hmm. a, a particular sphere without seeping uh, into the other. So that's, that's where I think the government will go uh, eventually. I think there will be, uh, uh, Captain Martin, she was at a uh, press conference last week, she said that the long-term funding will be addressed in the new year. I think it will have to be addressed at some stage next year because I, I think if it's not, I think RTE will, will continue to have to come back to government uh, with its cap in hand uh, looking for bailouts and that's never a, a good look. I think they need to do something structurally with it and I think the government should be minded to do it next year. I think it's sure. not going to do them any harm politically.
3: OK, we're straying a little bit off the point, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Cormac, the other big thing on today's Cabinet agenda is road safety and it seems like... New speed limits and greater enforcement is is on the way.
1: Well, I don't think it's actually on today's cabinet agenda. It's coming in the coming weeks. Uh, but yes, there has been a review of speed limits on the roads and, and there are various proposals. Uh, for instance, a, a new default speed limit on national secondary roads would drop from 100 kilometres per hour to 80 kilometres an hour. Uh, for, for local and rural roads, it would drop from 80 kilometres per hour to, to 60 kilometres an hour. And we've we've all been on those car journeys uh, in rural areas where you're, you're going down essentially a, an unmarked uh, Barely two-lane road and the speed limit is eighty kilometres, and it seems crazy. But but then there's also the case of uh, urban areas and arterial routes, which which might prove a bit more controversial. I mean, the housing states and town centres reducing to thirty kilometres per hour, and many, many of them are already. And then arterial roads and radial routes around urban centres set at fifty kilometres an hour. Now that that's very tricky. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the roads leading into Dublin are are kind of 80 kilometres per hour or 100 kilometres per hour, and and people don't necessarily stick to the speed limits on those. Uh, Mm -hmm. If if you're driving at 60, you feel like you're crawling along on some of those arterial routes. So I think, I mean, setting it at 50 kilometres an hour is... It's it's quite unrealistic. I just don't pe- I think people would would do it. Uh, certainly not in the absence of of very massively increased enforcement in the ter- in the form of guardi with speed guns and go safe vans and and all of that, which which wouldn't yeah. be terribly popular either. So it'll be interesting to see how many of these proposals actually get over the line, or whether there'll be a compromise reached in that. I
3: mean, there there is a way, of course, I and mean, it seems to me we have this discussion periodically in the wake of you know, tragic accidents on the road of, of which we have seen some dreadful examples uh, in, in the recent past that listeners will be familiar with. But they, they tend to prompt a political outcry. You get a dose of the old politician's syllogism. You know, we must do something. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. And tends to come down to calls for greater enforcement and reviews of speed limits. But, you know, there's... There's a way of enforcing speed limits that, you know, the authorities could do in the morning if they wanted. And that's like to, you know, increase by a factor of 100 the the number of speed cameras around. You could put speed cameras on every road. They would catch everybody who's speeding. But my guess is that might be very unpopular,
1: would it? Most likely, I suppose. It would be a more more effective way of catching people. I, I think if you want to make sure people behave, the model already exists on some of our roads, I'm thinking Port Tunnel and uh, the M7. It's, it's an average speed camera zone. So there's a, there's a, a camera as you enter the zone and there's a camera at, at the exit. And if, if you're doing an average, for instance, on the M7 of under 120 miles an hour, you, you complied with the speed limit and, uh, and you will not get fined. But, uh, but if your average is above that. Over a, a lengthy enough stretch of road um you 'll be fine i mean I, th- I think that is a very effective form of of speed cameras it 's better than the static camera that that might catch people that might or might not be switched on uh, i I think would encourage greater levels of of uh, compliance with the, the speed limits but but you 're right speed cameras are they 're very unpopular and and they they come with penalty points and and uh, and fines and uh, yeah. penalty points can rack up quite quickly yeah
3: but my point is I wonder of the genuine public. And therefore, political appetite uh, for this, because if you look at lots of places in the UK, there's a much more intrusive level of monitoring by speed cameras. I mean, it, it's perfectly doable. It's just whether there's real desire for it or not.
1: Sure, it's it's just yeah whether whether they they actually go for. It. I mean, I think another kind of decent idea was uh, was the proposal that was outlined in Harry and his story on, on Monday about about penalty points whereby if uh, somebody is caught uh with multiple offenses at the same time they would get penalty points for each of them so say you're on the phone and speeding at the same time I was quite surprised to learn that that you, that wasn't the case already that you you get penalty points for what's considered the, the worst offense but uh, but none none beyond that which which seems a bit crazy uh, but it, it, you know there there are there are tools at their disposal that that they're they're looking at uh, whether whether they go the the full hog remains to be seen
3: mm, yeah well there seems to be quite a long tail on this anyway it's not like the Speed limits are going to be changing next week.
1: No, absolutely not. The the review is is currently being finalised due to go to government soon, but but it would require I presume legislation to be passed in the Octus. So so add months onto that one, uh, and and, and then yeah. and expect the the, the usual uh, backlash from from certain quarters. I'm thinking rural independents and and rural TDs from from Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, uh, that that often bulk at, at at new road enforcement uh, measures that they they see see as unfairly targeting uh, their parts of the country
3: Harry the think-ins begin next week uh, Fianna Fáil starts on Monday and they run throughout the week you must be looking forward to them
0: absolutely it's a highlight of my year pass every every August from August at uh, start of August I begin writing it down into my diary and kind of counting <laughs> down the days uh, before we uh, get to experience uh, the greatest political minds in the country, coming up with new policy ideas, uh, coming up with uh, new inspirational ideas in order to transform our society and our country in the way that uh, we live. Um, It's
3: early, Harry, but have you been drinking?
0: (laughs) I was hoping that you might uh, detect the slightest uh, hint of uh, sarcasm in my voice Uh, because they have become very much um, uh, anything but think-ins. They've become... Uh, kind of uh, a parliamentary...
3: What is the point of them now? Are they just kind of... They're kind of rallying... Are they kind of rallying points for the parties or,
2: or yeah, are they? I mean, they there used social, to be a mixture of
3: social a, occasion and a bit of political work.
1: Now... There, there used to... In my, in my memory, there used to be kind of, you know, the odds budget kite flown. Yeah, things, that's but true. That seems yeah. to be a, le- a bit less of that in recent years uh, but perhaps given the nature of the governments we've had in more recent years, but but that that's that's something that we'd always look out for. Whether whether it'll happen this time or not, we'll see. I
3: mean, we we'll probably talk about this in more detail next week when we've when we've done them all. But they they used to be fantastically boozy, but not so much anymore, really.
0: No, but there's still a social element to them. And it is an opportunity for the parliamentary party to meet for the first time. It's like the first team meeting of the year. So there is a little bit of housekeeping to do and maybe they spell out the priorities. But they have become very pro forma uh, over the years. So you can you, you know exactly what to expect when you go. There will be an opening speech by the leader. They'll go into private session. They might have one or two guest speakers who are kind of talking about the latest political or policy fads. And then you will get a kind of a policy initiative, uh, open quote mark, close quote mark, uh, which is given out to the media, which they can usually re- report it, it the following day. So they're, they're, they're done as well. They they A few coincide this year, but in the past they have managed to kind of sequence them so that you have one political story and one political party every uh, day. So there's kind of slight artifice to them as well having said that there have been a few uh which have genuinely been uh Thinkins or uh rowins. um i i uh, particularly in fianna Fola. Uh, might uh, you might recollect ones in other parties but uh there was of course the, the famous inch donny uh thinking back in um oh my god harry 2004 2004 yeah where
3: bertie discovered socialism that's right. It was used, yeah. That's right. The post McCreevy era, yeah.
0: Jesus, that's nearly 20 years ago, though, Harry. 19 years ago. But more recently, of course, um, there was great kind of uh, muttering and gnashing of teeth within the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party that this famous Sean Fleming report into what went wrong in the 2020 election uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't being aired. So it all culminated with a showdown in Cavan. That's right. That was two years ago. It was the big showdown between Micheál Martin and his rest
3: of backbenchers. But it turned into a bit of a damp squib, though. Huh? And Like
0: everything else in Fianna Fáil over the past 10 years, uh, they marched him up to the top of the hill and Mihal just emerged as undisputed leader, you know. I mean, he's extraordinary. I mean, there a, he has no enemies within the party anymore because they're all gone now, you know. So his, his, uh, his leadership of the party... They, are they
3: gone, though, Harry? Are they... You know, waiting well, with their pikes in the thatch.
0: Or. well, they're well, they're 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 hiding them extremely well at the moment because we haven't seen sight nor sound of them in the past year. But he kind of he battened that down very effectively two years ago. That promised to be something, and in the end, it turned out that uh, Mihol really uh, uh, doubled down on his leadership in the party. But otherwise, uh, they have you know they're pro forma, you get some policy, you get a, maybe one or two interesting announcements, but they are kind of uh, free publicity turns for the political parties just before the Doyle and the Shannon returns. Yeah, I sometimes, I sometimes get the sense that the reason
3: the parties do them now is because they're in the kind of media calendar and they, you know, they have to do them rather than, you know, having any huge political strategy behind them. I'd agree completely.
1: Absolutely, it's also an excuse to bring the political roadshow to uh, to constituencies where you might be looking to bolster a local candidate or something like that. Now, it didn't work out for Fall last year when when they went to Mullingar at the height of uh, Robert Troy's misery over, oh, the Robert over Troy his, controversy, uh, his, that's right his declarations about properties. Uh, there there had there had to be a, a show of unity with him at the time. Um, but this year there, there'll be a an horse and jockey where where the horse and jockey uh, we, in Tipperary. It's, yeah. uh, it's the Jackie Cattle's heartland. Now, he has a decision to make in relation to where he's going to run next time around after the constituency uh, review.
3: That's right. Tipperary is yeah, split in yeah, two. Like th- into It was a five-seater. It's split into two three-seaters. Horse and jockey's more or less in the middle of it as is Jackie Cal's heartland in Holy Cross,
1: yeah. It it is. It will be something that he will surely be asked uh, when when that's, that when that happens because he'd be standing beside me, All Martin. It also it can be an opportunity to promote certain candidates. I half wonder if the reason the Greens are down Waterford is is to uh, is to get uh, Grace O'Sullivan front and centre ahead of the European Parliament elections. But maybe that's too, But reading too much into yeah, it, the you Greens
3: know, Greens are in. The Greens are in Trimore. Fina Fall is in Horse and Jockey. Fina Gael are in Limerick. Labour are in Manuth. I think all the others are in Dublin. Sinn Fein's just doing a one day in Dublin. Sock Dems just Sock Dems are in Dublin, Dublin. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that is all. That is all in
0: store for us next week. Funnily enough, Sinn Fein have never ventured too far from Dublin. I think the furthest they've gone to Dublin has been to the outskirts of Drogheda uh, several years ago. But since then, it's it's been. Dublin each and every year, as far as I can recall. I can't remember them being outside of Dublin. Shockingly partitionist mindset, perhaps. uh, Absolutely.
3: Anyway, Uh, anyway, lots to look forward to next week. Uh, Gentlemen, we leave it there for now. And uh, thank you for your time. And we will take a quick break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. Well, optimism that the Northern institutions are set for a revival this autumn is waning, amid little sign that the DUP is prepared to jump. Patience appears to be wearing thin in both the Irish and British governments, judging by comments made by both Micheál Martin and Chris Heaton-Harris at last weekend's British-Irish Association meeting in Oxford. To discuss this and the prospects for the autumn, I'm joined by our Northern editor, Freya McClements. Morning, Freya. Morning, Pat. What is the state of play in the DUP at the moment because i think before the summer there was a view largely shared in Dublin and in London though i've always thought Dublin was a little less optimistic about this than London was uh, that jeffrey donaldson wants to get back into stormont he's trying to maneuver his party in that direction He just needs a bit of time and support. But there's been kind of little enough evidence for that, you know, over the summer months, has there?
2: I mean, you know, when you look back on this, I sort of feel like I've been saying this for a long time and it's been well over a year, in fact. But at some stage, a decision is just going to have to be made. And you talk there about, you know, giving... Jeffrey Donaldson a bit of time. I mean, time and space were were sort of the, the buzzwords at the British Irish Association last year. You know, were, we're a full year on from that. And I think, I mean, it. it's absolutely the case, as you say, that Jeffrey Donaldson wants to go back into Stormont. You know, he, he's always known that that had to be the eventual destination point. But the question is, when is he going to make that that move? And really, it comes down to how confident he is that he can bring the rest of his party w- with him Um and, and that is just going to come down to, you know, d- does he have have the nerve? You know, if he makes that jump he's going to have, have to go for it and I mean very broadly speaking he has the MLAs behind him and don't forget they've already taken a pay cut because Stormont isn't sitting and they're also the people who are getting the frustration at, at home. It's the Sammy Wilsons, the Nigel Dodds, you, you know the party's big beasts um, who are MPs, who sit at Westminster um, they're the ones who take the harder line and in, in, in some ways it's because they they can afford to um, because they're they're safe in in their seats in in Westminster Is that
3: I mean it's 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 a generalisation and it's it's sketched in you know in broad terms but that is still correct is it that the in terms of your read of the DUP that the MLAs on balance want to get back to Stormont, but the MPs don't.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's broadly the breakdown. And again, it's back to at what point does Geoffrey Donaldson make this decision that, you know, we're going back in, you know, effectively back me or sack me. I'm the party leader. If you don't like it, you know what you can do. But the problem in all of this is that the longer you wait, the weaker your position becomes. And I, and I always felt that the best opportunity for the DUP to go back in was immediately after the Windsor framework was agreed in February. And, and there again, it kind of comes back down to just that point about having the nerve. You know, Jeffrey Donaldson could have sold the changes to the protocol as a DUP win and used it as yeah. cover to, to to go back in. But by not doing so, it allowed his opponents, it allowed the hardliners, it allowed them to get out in front. And, and once that opposition to the framework sort of hardened and coalesced to sort of almost the, the, the settled position of the, of the party, before it had even re- actually responded to it officially, you know, it, it's much harder to budge from, from that position. So so again, you know, for me, it's where does the trigger point come that, that, that's going to make that jump happen? And I mean, one of the, the, the big takeaways for me, um, I was at the British Irish Association in Oxford at the weekend and one of the clear takeaways for me, and, and Chris Heaton-Harris, the Northern Secretary, said it in as many words, is, you know, the Windsor framework is not going to be reopened. It is done. I mean, in fact, the UK government and the EU are moving towards Implementation, so there isn't going to be another fig leaf, if you like, that like what you w- would have had in in February. So I mean, it, it it really does come down to me, you know, is 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 he going to have the nerve? At what point does he make the decision and say, right, we're going to go back in and we're going to deal with with the consequences in the party?
3: Has he missed the chance to kind of claim victory?
2: Possibly. I mean, I, again, for me, the opportunity was when the Windsor Framework w- was brought in, and I would have thought. At that point, you know, the opportunity is there. Get out in front of it, get out in front of the cameras before the sniping begins and say you know everybody said it couldn't be changed we've got it changed. changed we secured it. these we yet. didn't get everything we want but
3: we got a lot and it's the best deal for unionism exactly
2: yeah. so you know what we'll go in we'll be the bigger people we'll be statesmen like yeah. we'll go in and 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 we'll tweak everything around the edges from within the assembly because we understand that's the best for the people of northern ireland etc et cetera, et cetera. But
3: that opportunity's gone now yeah. so yeah. where where do they go from here what's
2: well I mean... what's I mean, your
3: expectation of where this goes well, in the coming months? Well,
2: I mean, there is a sense that there is a brief window o- over the next few months. Um, and I think a few months ago, everybody had been sort of talking around October. There is a bit of a sense that this is is, is dissipating. Um, we have the DUP conference mid, mid-October, which is really just just over a month uh, ahead. Whether or not Jeffrey Donaldson will want to make the move but before then and, and possibly face um, criticism at, at the conference. Um, the, the other things in terms of what's coming up um, date-wise is obviously very soon we're going to be into a Westminster election campaign. Um, and I think it's fair to say, I mean, the situation in, in the North certainly isn't the focus of the UK government at the moment. I mean, it has enough problems I'd all, say that's of its putting own, it mildly. You know? yeah. But I mean, the nearer you get to an election, that's going to become e- e- even more so. So in terms of capturing the interest of the UK government to get this resolved, you know, you have a very, very short window there. And just a point on, on that in terms of the UK government approach. I mean, again, Chris Heaton-Harris was, was really clear in Oxford at the weekend. He said there, there's no financial package on, on the table to encourage the DUP to return and, and he actually said, you know, in the past, the so-called solution to the Northern Ireland problem has been to throw money at it and to hope it will go away. And this pattern is not going to be repeated. Now, there has always been, money has always been part of the deal in terms of getting the assembly back up and running. And and I think he's using it as a bit of, it's a bit of a carrot and stick um, thing here yeah, going but, on. But,
3: but let's talk about the stick then for a little bit on that because there's been a lot of work done in the British government, as I understand it, uh, about, you know, identifying the differences between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom in terms of, you know, at a basic level of what people pay for themselves, what the state pays for. And so things like, you know, domestic water supply, prescriptions, some aspects of domiciliary care, transport for the over 60s, university fees, all of these things are paid for by the state, in case of university fees is a difference in, in, in the level, I guess, but all these things are paid for by the state in Northern Ireland and paid for by people themselves in uh, in in the rest of the UK so this is is it not the source of you know some of the kind of financial sort of the Damocles that's how hanging over uh, the north in a way is that the, the imposition of all these charges to bring it on a par with the rest of the the UK and that is what people in Downing Street are talking. Uh, about doing in the absence of a devolved administration, right? So it's very much more stick than carrot. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, it's it, it's a very blunt stick. We're sort of mixing um, metaphors all over the place <laughs> okay. here. Um, but um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. That, that Better is, than a
3: blunt carrot, I suppose. Yeah,
2: well, indeed. Um, but I suppose any type of stick isn't good, but we digress. Um, I mean, yeah, very broadly speaking, that's the argument that's being, being made in Downing Street. And it's, you know, if You don't behave and get back in there, there's going to be an awful yeah. lot more economic pain to come. Um, on top of the economic pain that Northern Ireland is going in th- going through, but that that I mean, that that um ignores other economic realities. I mean, the fact that Northern Ireland ha- has the lowest levels of income, um, in the UK, you know, the fact that it, it has some of the worst um economic black spots, some of the worst areas of deprivation, um, that it has had. Decades and decades of underinvestment in in, in many areas. So Northern Ireland is is starting from from a a much lower base point. Um, And and, and you could argue, I mean, to borrow UK government phrase, levelling up. um, You know, you could argue that that what Northern Ireland actually needs is, is investment and support to bring things like standard of living up to the levels that, that that you would see elsewhere in the UK, so it, it's not a level playing field, but th- this this seems to be the tactic. This is the tactic um, that that the UK government is using, and, and this all kind of ties into broader broader things about how Northern Ireland is is is, is funded. I mean, Stormont has no revenue raising powers, and. and Sort of broadly speaking Northern Ireland is funded by the block grant which is basically an amount of money that is given by Westminster every year to Northern Ireland to, to to pay for everything and you're given a certain amount of money and you have to work within it and the problem is I mean at the minute Northern Ireland is is effectively broke. Um, there's all this talk about a budgetary black hole it's it's estimated it's going to take around an, about an extra 1 billion on top of what comes from the block grant, just to resolve this. So while the UK government can can talk about things like, well, you know, you get free prescription charges or you don't have to have to pay water charges and people elsewhere in, in, in the UK do, you know, the reality of all this is that people are really suffering on the ground. I mean, again, to not to get too much into the disparities between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, but the waiting lists in Northern Ireland are, are worse Than they are in the rest of the UK, and I think it's something approaching twice as bad. Um, there's something like I think off the top of my head, it's 22 percent of people in Northern Ireland are on a waiting list. Um, 22 percent of the entire population, yeah, of the entire population of Northern Ireland, compared to something like I think 13 percent if you look at the rest, the rest of the UK. So that that's I mean, I mean that's one in five people. Um, and 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 some of those, I mean, there, there were reports in the media last week, um, about um the waiting list for children's tonsillitis appointments, um, seven years. Um one lady had been told her son would have to wait um, for a tonsillitis appointment. Um, some people are on waiting lists for so long that they actually they drop off the waiting list because they become too ill to actually have the operation that they need or because they die, quite, quite frankly. I mean, I mean th- th- this is the situation that we're that we're dealing with on the ground while. You people in the corridors and, of Whitehall I mean, are talking about, well, you don't have to it, pay for your
3: prescription is this Is this generating, is an awareness of that generating uh, any sort of impatience with the parties, and I suppose the DUP in particular, amongst its supporters or those people that might be disposed to vote for it, for a return to Stormont? Or is it seen as that their stance on what is essentially a constitutional objection to to the Windsor framework you know Trump's Things like waiting lists and that.
2: Yeah, I, I think I mean I mean it's absolutely true to say that there's a huge degree of disillusionment. There's a huge degree of of frustration. Um, I mean, when you talk to people, people want to go back. That people want to go back in into in Stormont. Um, I don't have the poll figures off the top of my head, but the the the, the preference um, in in general is is clearly to go back into Stormont. Oh, and sure. I, there's yeah, an overwhelming majority. Yeah, of want to yeah, chat, yeah, yeah. There's an overwhelming majority. But. When, you actually, when it actually comes to an election and, and you know how elections in in Northern Ireland, the reality is is that that voting patterns still break down largely along those tr- traditional lines. Um, and for example the next, Election that there will be in Northern Ireland will be a, a Westminster election, and people will walk into that polling booth, um, facing the choice broadly between a unionist candidate, a, a nationalist candidate, or a, 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 an other as, a, as an an alliance candidate, mm. and people will feel that they have have little little choice. If you're a unionist in a, in a in a constituency, and you want to vote for a unionist, they will feel really that that they have little choice, um, but 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 to do so, um, so it, it is that you know traditional. Divisions trumping, um, you know, social issues. It is to an extent, but one of the things that that, that we've also seen is obviously that the huge growth of the alliance vote, and we we've talked mm-hmm. talked about talked about that as well. So I mean, th- th- things are changing but i think in terms of people's electoral pattern it it, it hasn't really caught up with um certainly the, the type of voting that, that you would see elsewhere where people sort of vote al- along mm. the lines of issues I, I think i would just add one thing to that is also is that the, what what all of this fuels and all the dysfunction that, that that we've seen because don't forget just before COVID we had another three years of of, of a lack of assembly o- all of this fuels a disillusion with, with politics a disengagement of w- yeah. with politics people say well well what what what's what's the point you know they they don't they don't see politics as as fixing anything so that that adds to that sort of that sense of disillusionment as well
3: briefly then do you see a revival of the institutions before Christmas?
2: Well, I mean, never say never. Um, you know, in theory, it, it could happen tomorrow. It's, it's, never. It's, it's relatively simple, indeed. Sorry, uh, very good accent. Um, you know, in theory, it's relatively simple. Um, I think we've ta- we've talked about the schedule. Uh, there, there is a window, but it's a brief window. We've talked about the DUP conference, um, there, there, and the, the Westminster election. I mean, I mean, two points I would make. We hadn't really talked about the Irish government very very much but again the, the sense that I got at, at, at the weekend at the conference is that um the Irish government isn't willing to lift to, to let this drift um indefinitely so if it goes to say maybe halloween without being restored you know dublin will be in uh, it's already sort of intimated things to this effect but um you know will be very clear saying though, can't I? well but Dublin has has a role in Northern Ireland Affairs thats set out in the Good Friday agreement mm. and it, and it will be arguing that that needs to be respected you know that we can't we, we can't have you know you know direct rule by stealth if you like that, that 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 Dublin's role as well as London's has to be um respected in this um and just to kind of t- touch a little bit again on on the Westminster election which is expected autumn 2024 I mean let's hope we're not here having this same conversation in, in a year's time but I mean in in terms of the the trigger point, point the push point um that might get the DUP back um into into uh, into Stormont. Um I'll be watching polling results um, very closely because so far, the DUP has held sort of broadly steady in its support, but they've been through two elections uh, in which Sinn Féin has really, really benefited from the DUP boycott. Now, Westminster is a different kettle of fish because you have a single MP elected in a constituency. It's first past the post. But I'd be watching East Belfast in particular, um, especially for the Alliance leader, Naomi Long, runs there. Mm-hmm. There'll be a big battle there between the DUP deputy leader, Gavin Robinson, um, and, the, and, and Naomi Long. And the tally between the DUP and Sinn Féin at Westminster is currently. 8-7. So the DEP won't want to, to lose um, a seat there. So that could be what eventually pushes the party back in. But I mean it's certainly going to be a busy time. I think that's one thing we can, we can say for certain.
3: Busy for a few months for you for Absolutely. us uh, ahead. Freya, thanks for making time for us um, this morning. That's Freya McClements, our Northern Editor. That's all we've time for for this week. My thanks to producer Declan Conlon. JJ Vernon was on Sound. I'm Pat Leahy and we'll talk to you next week.